Well, it wasn't too long ago in our series of systematic theology that we went through the doctrine of God's eternal decree, the doctrine of creation. If you remember, in both of those sections, there was a very heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And of course, Pastor JP touched on the doctrine of God's providence, which essentially is the idea that not only is God sovereign, but that he controls all things with a plan, with a purpose. Well, I want to revisit those ideas of sovereignty and providence today, but rather than get into more of the heavier, weightier stuff like we did, like, you know, we went into superlapsarianism and all the logical word decrees and all that, I want to address a very common everyday problem that we all have to some degree or another, and I want to get a little bit more practical today. So today, I want to address the respectable sin of anxiety. The sin of worry. Now, I'm calling it a respectable sin. Why am I calling it? Well, those are not my words. That's what Jerry Bridges called it, the late Jerry Bridges. Along with other sins such as impatience, unthankfulness, discontentment, and selfishness. In his book, Respectable Sins, he voices the concern that we as Christians have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society, like abortion, mass shootings, homosexuality, that we oftentimes lose sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. And of course, that's not to say that the abominations such as abortion, homosexuality, should not be addressed. We have to speak to those things. We must address those things. But those are the obvious sins of our culture. Those are easy to talk about. They're easy to condemn. We also need to address those not-so-obvious sins in our lives, those sins that are more close to home. There are things that we can say, things that we do, mindsets that we can have daily that have become so commonplace among us that we tend to overlook them. We tend to tolerate them. They become normal, quote-unquote become respectable. Now, I want to be extremely clear as to why I want to go over this today. Sometimes you'll find people talking this way, like I am now, and then slowly but surely you'll you'll begin to see them compromise on sins such as abortion and homosexuality. That's just, you know, they start going down that path. So I want to assure you that this is not one of those cases where I'm just throwing Matthew 7, 1 in your face, judge not lest you be judged. Right? And then I'm going to begin to ignore those sins. I see people do that all the time. It drives me crazy. I'm not asking us to ignore those obvious sins. But what I'm asking is that we take that same concern and that same zeal to make sure that we are just as diligent in our own lives in dealing with our own sins as we are with, the, with addressing those outside of our walls. And I suppose another reason why this has been heavy on my mind lately is because of the year I had last year. (laughs) It was brutal. And COVID-19 was the least of my concerns. (laughs) I'm not going to give you all the details, but there was some stuff that, that decisions I had made years and years ago that caught up with me. Just bad decisions. My life wasn't as solid or as put together as I thought, or maybe some others had thought. And the Lord brought it to my attention multiple times over and over last year. 
I probably cried more last year than I've done in the previous 44 years combined in my life. I couldn't even watch American Idol without boo-hooing. But that happens, doesn't it? We see it happen to others. How many times have we seen someone who we respected and thought, man, they really have it all together. And then and the next thing you know, they're getting a divorce. Or they got some weird secret sin that comes to light. Or they're walking away from the faith altogether. We've seen this happen over and over again. But why? Why does it happen? Well, Dr. Bridges, and I think he's right, attributes this not only to the fact that the idea of sin has disappeared from our culture at large, but the sinfulness of sin has even been weakened in our own view, in our own churches, in our own walls. And oftentimes we deflect to those outside of our walls. He says it's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness, and lust, or even lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And he goes on, but on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are the sins of the saints. In fact, we often indulge in what I call the respectable or even acceptable sins without any sense of sin. Our gossip or unkind words about a brother or sister in Christ roll easily off our tongues without any awareness of wrongdoing. We harbor hurts over wrongs long past without any effort to forgive as God has forgiven us. And we look down our religious noses at sinners, quote-unquote, in society without any sense of a humble, there but for the grace of God go I, spirit. And then he goes on to say, we are incensed, and rightfully so, when a major denomination ordained a practicing homosexual as a bishop. But why do we not also mourn over our own selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, and our anger? It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying that these sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones of society. But God has not given us the authority to establish values for different sins. Instead, he says through James, quote, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So again, a point of clarity here. This is not to say that all sins are equal. Our catechism deals with that. Question 150, all transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. You know, I'd rather you be, you know, just mouth off at your neighbor one day than to go to your neighbor's house and stab them to death. And I'm sure your neighbor would appreciate that distinction as well. But Jesus taught in Matthew 5, that whoever murders and whoever is angry with his brother without cause are both liable to judgment. And so while all sins are not equally heinous, all sins are serious and are not to be taken lightly. Our larger catechism goes on to say in question 152, every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. It cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. So we often overlook our own respectable sins because they don't seem to be as bad as what people on the outside are doing. When we gossip or worry, these things 
are so insignificant in comparison, it seems. They're not that big of a deal. And so we turn a blind eye to them. And we allow them to grow, to fester. But beloved, sin is sin. All sin is lawlessness. All sin is a complete disregard for the law of God. Even those sins that we've just come to accept, that we just tolerate in our own lives, they are extremely serious in the eyes of God, deserving of his wrath and curse. Our unkind speech about others, our impatience, our anger, even our anxiety are all very serious sins in the sight of God. And they will eventually catch up with us. Now, this may be a painful analogy for some, but these respectable sins operate a lot like cancer. Another term for cancer is malignancy. Medically, the word describes a tumor of potentially unlimited growth that expands locally into adjoining tissue by invasion and systematically by metastasizing to other areas of the body. Left alone, a malignancy tends to infiltrate and metastasize throughout the entire body and will eventually cause death. Well, sin, says Bridges, is a spiritual and moral malignancy. Left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives. Even worse, it will often metastasize from us into the lives of others around us. None of us live on a social or social or spiritual or social island. Our attitudes, our words, our actions, and oftentimes even our private unspoken thoughts tend to have an effect on those around us. So I think that analogy is very fitting. It helps explain why we see those people that seem to just have it all together and then bang, out of nowhere, something crazy happens. And then when you start to dig into why that divorce happened or why that person walked away from the faith, you begin to discover that it just didn't happen overnight. There were some problems going on years back. They weren't seen as problems. Or if they were seen as problems, they weren't judged to be serious problems. And so they get overlooked. They get neglected. Years go on, and then finally, bam, the fullness of those sins comes to fruition. And you realize, sadly, even after it's too late, that those sins were more serious than you thought they were. Like cancer, it can grow undetected until it reaches a crisis stage or even a state that is terminal. We've seen people who appear to have nothing wrong with them and then all of a sudden some bad news from the doctor and they're dead three months later. This is how these respectable sins operate in our lives. We deceive ourselves into thinking that these sins aren't so bad. Or worse, we won't even call it sin. How many of you got uncomfortable when I said that anxiety is a sin? How many of you instantly began to rationalize in your head that, well, it's not that big of a deal? How many of you began to think about what other people do, like the abortionists, the mass murderers, the homosexuals, 
And then thought, well, at least I'm not doing that. Beloved, this tendency to compare ourselves, to evaluate our conduct relative to those outside of our walls is a very dangerous game to be playing. It's easy for us to feel good about ourselves and assume that God thinks the same way about us. And we ignore the reality of the sin that is in our own lives. So we need to restore in our thinking the sinfulness of sin, as a Puritan put it. We need to grasp how our sin not only ruins ourselves, but those around us. But more importantly, we need to view sin the way God views it. Someone has described sin as cosmic treason. That seems like an overstatement. Consider that the word transgression in the Bible, as seen, for example, in Leviticus 16.21, actually means rebellion against authority. In this case, God's authority. So when I gossip, I'm rebelling against God. When I harbor resentful thoughts towards someone instead of forgiving them in my heart, I'm rebelling against God. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, the prophet Isaiah sees this vision of God in his absolute majesty. He hears these angelic beings calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Any Jew would have understood the threefold repetition there was meant to intend to convey the idea that God has the highest possible degree of holiness. In other words, God is infinitely holy. But what does it mean to say that God is infinitely holy? Certainly it speaks of his absolute moral purity, but it does much more than that. Primarily the word holy when used of God speaks of his infinite transcendent majesty. It speaks of his sovereign reign over all his creation. Therefore, when we sin, when we violate the law of God in any way, however small that we think it is in our eyes, we rebel against that sovereign authority and the transcendent majesty of God. To put it bluntly, our sin is an assault on the majesty and sovereign rule of God. It is cosmic treason. In our Bible reading, we're not far from chapters 11 and 12 there in 2 Samuel. But when we get there, we're going to read the story of David and his adultery with Bathsheba. But not only did he commit adultery, then he put Bathsheba's husband on the front lines of battle, told the men to withdraw so that they, he could be killed easily. And he did that to cover up his other sin. Well, needless to say, God did not like this. So he sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him of his sin. Now listen how Nathan describes David's actions. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, 
because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Notice Nathan says first that David had despised the word of the Lord. But then in verse 10, God speaking through his prophet then says, you have despised me. So we clearly see from this episode that to despise the word of God is to despise God himself. You cannot separate God from his word, from his law. Think about that. The next time you begin to rationalize in your heart why you think that your minor transgression isn't that big of a deal. But it gets worse. Paul writing in Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor. We are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Then verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, Bridges writes, when we think of our sin as rebellion against God's sovereign authority, in a despising of both his law and his person, we are viewing God in his rightful role as ruler and judge. But when we see our sin as grieving the Holy Spirit, that is grieving God, we are viewing God as our Redeemer and Father. Our sin grieves our Heavenly Father. Whether we are unkind to someone else or unforgiving when someone is unkind to us, we grieve our Father's heart. And then consider, too, that all of our sin is done in the presence of God. You know, I've been a professional truck driver for 11 years. And especially after spending time in Orlando and Miami, I've developed a little bit of a cold heart <laughs> in driving. Especially when people are trying to merge onto the interstate. 90% of people just don't get it. You know, I'll be in the right-hand lane. I'll try to get over if I can, but usually I can. I'm in a big truck. So I see this car coming. I do exactly what I was told to do, keep my speed constant. So they can judge what I'm doing. They can either speed up or slow down. And I tell you, every day, somebody comes along, gets right alongside of me, goes the same speed I'm going. <laughs> Runs out of lane, slams the brake. This happened last, and I, I punched the steering wheel, you moron, what are you doing? After I calmed down for a bit, I thought to myself, you know, Jason, what if that was an Anna or a Kaylee just learning how to drive? Could be. Or some older person. Or maybe someone learning how to drive a stick. You know. And then I went on to think, Jason, what you know, would you have acted that way if Jesus was sitting over there in the passenger seat? Now I know the answer to that. The answer is no, I wouldn't. That's probably as far as it would have went. 
I know I wouldn't have beat the steering wheel and hollered out, you moron. But then I thought, is it really the case that he's not here? That he's not there? Listen to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Wow. God knows our words before we even speak them. The man, Christ Jesus, may not physically be sitting there in the passenger seat, but he's there. Think about that. Next time you're tempted to do a quote-unquote minor respectable sin. Again, Bridges said this means that all of our rebellion, all of our despising of God and his law, all of our grieving his Holy Spirit, all of our presuming on his grace, all of our sin is done openly in the very presence of God. It's as if we were acting out all of our sin before him as he sits on his royal throne. So it does not matter if our sin is as scandalous as what some nuts and teeth are doing out on the streets. It could be those quiet, secret, respectable sins. Beloved, the point I want to get across to you, sin is sin, whether large or small. In our eyes, it is heinous in the sight of God. Jesus did not bear some sins on the cross, while dealing with other sins in some other less brutal way. The same curse, the same wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of the abortionist and the homosexual is the same curse, the same wrath that was poured out on Jesus for our sins of discontentment, anger, and worry. And so we need to continually remind ourselves of this. We need to view sin as God sees it so that we don't become complacent. Well, that was my introduction. But don't worry, <laughs> I'm not going to keep you here for another hour. But before I let you go, I want to address this sin of anxiety. Perhaps in my other, I've got at least three more sermon opportunities at minimum the rest of the year. Maybe we can start a series here. But I thought I would just briefly touch on this issue of anxiety because it's one of the most common sins, I think, for us. We tend to tolerate it a great deal. And as I go into this, realize this, there's certainly a lot more that I could say as an introduction. So keep in mind, I'm assuming that you're a believer. I'm assuming that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've sought forgiveness in him, that you embrace the Bible as the infallible word of God. And I'm assuming that you have a basic general understanding of sanctification. That you understand that any power to overcome this sin is dependent upon God. And yet we still have a responsibility to take on our part. And I got to assume all that because if I didn't, I'd never get to the actual issue of anxiety. <laughs> my introduction could go on for four more sermons. And then I'd use up all my sermons for the year and never get to the issue. So my desire today is to speak to those of you who are believers, 
We just need a simple reminder regarding this issue of anxiety. This is not going to be exhaustive, but I hope it at least just points you in the right direction. The old 1828 Webster's Dictionary, a.k.a. the homeschoolers, uh, Bible, whatever, <laughs> defines anxiety as, quote, concern or solicitude respecting some event, future or uncertain, which disturbs the mind and keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. It expresses more than uneasiness or disturbance and even more than trouble or solicitude. It usually springs from fear or serious apprehension of evil and involves a suspense respecting an event and often a perplexity of mind to know how to shape our conduct. And so it's this feeling of nervousness, unease, which generally occurs when something event is imminent or something is uncertain. The word worry is similar. While a synonym for anxiety, it tends to be associated with more long-term difficult or painful circumstances for which there appears to be no solution, no resolution. These are the kinds of circumstances, right, Bridges, that tend to keep a person awake at night, worrying about what to do, while realizing there's nothing one can do. And then you can also throw in there with this, as Bridges does in his book, the word frustration. Frustration is that feeling of being upset or annoyed, especially because you do not have the ability to change or achieve something you would like to change or to achieve. Now, as you can see from these definitions, you're probably, every one of you thinking, yep, been there, done that. For some of you, this may even be a daily thing. It probably is for all of us to some degree or another. We get anxious over a job interview. We get anxious over having to speak to a crowd. We get anxious thinking about our future, about our jobs, our careers. We get anxious up until I got my stimulus check about our bank account. <laughs> we get anxious about who's in the White House. We get anxious over whether or not we're going to find a spouse. Am I going to be 30 years old and still be single? I could come up with thousands of examples. We've all been there. We've all had these thoughts. But see, that's exactly where the danger lies. You may be tempted to think it's not a big deal because it's common to most, if not all of us. Or we may even worse think that it's not even a problem. It's not even a sin. This is just normal. But our Lord says otherwise. One of the more prominent passages in which Jesus deals with this is Matthew 6, 25. There he states, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? 
or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, that is, those on the outside, the unbelievers, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Six times in nine verses, our Lord uses the word anxious. We're not, we are told not to be anxious about what we are to eat, what we are to drink, what we are to wear, or even about the unknown circumstances of tomorrow. Now I'm going to come back to this soon, but before I do, let me share a few more places, other places where anxiety is addressed. Another expression Jesus uses regarding anxiety is fear not. For example, in Matthew 10, we read, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Paul picks up on this theme in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And then in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter adds this. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice in these scriptures that when Jesus or Paul or Peter tells us not to be anxious, that he's not just throwing it out there as a nice, helpful suggestion. This is a moral command. In other words, God wills that you be not anxious. Or to say it more bluntly, anxiety is a sin. But why is it a sin? How could something that's so common in our lives be a sin? Well, we can see why in these texts by noticing what Scripture couples with it and then the remedy Scripture gives us for us. Notice that in Jesus' words, he said that if our Heavenly Father takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, will he not much more take care of our temporal needs? And then the reason Peter gives in commanding us not to cast all of our commanding us to cast all of our anxieties on him is because, quote, he cares for you. We see then that anxiety is a distrust in God because both Jesus and Peter have to remind us that God cares for us. Bridges again writes, suppose someone you love were to say to you, you know, I don't trust you. I don't believe you love me and will care for me. What an affront that would be to you. And yet that is what we are saying to God by our anxiety. We are afraid of the unknown. We worry about circumstances for which there appears to be no resolution. When we are anxious or worried, we show that we are fearful of the future, whether that be immediate or long term. We do not trust that God is going to be there in the future to care for us. But I ask you, beloved, are you not of more value than the birds of the air? Are you not of more worth than the lilies of the field? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father clothes the grass of the field. Will he not much more clothe you? And then furthermore, we get upset and annoyed that something didn't go as we planned it. We didn't get that house that we planned on or that job or that spouse or whatever it may be. It just didn't go as we planned. 
But then that leads to the second reason why anxiety is a sin. We freak out and we get annoyed, we get upset, because ultimately we lack acceptance of God's providence in our lives. Beloved, we are told flat out in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, but we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. All things work together for good for those who are the called. God's providence may be simply defined as God's orchestrating all circumstances and all events in the universe for his glory and for the good of his people. Some believers have difficulty accepting the fact that God does, in fact, orchestrate all events and circumstances. And even those of us who do believe it often lose sight of this glorious truth. Instead, we tend to focus on the immediate causes of our anxiety rather than remembering that those immediate causes are all under the sovereign control of God. Beloved, have you forgotten this glorious truth? How can you? It's all around you, even in nature. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Every atom in the universe is managed by Christ so as to be most to the advantage of the Christian. Every particle of air or every ray of the sun so that he in the other world, when he comes to see it, shall sit and enjoy all this vast inheritance with surprising, amazing joy. I think that's part of Jesus' point here in Matthew 6. Jesus told us to look at the birds of the air because God's feeding them. And consider the lilies because it's God who's clothing the fields. Why is Jesus telling us this? He's not telling us this because watching birds is just a fun thing to do, which it is, by the way. (laughs) I've I've noticed lately, I don't know if it's because I'm home more because of my hours, but we've got these ospreys in our backyard. I call them Seahawks. It's a nickname. It's the coolest thing, though. They'll, uh, They'll circle around the pond, I don't know, 150, 200 feet, and then they'll just find a spot and they'll just hover there. Then they'll just kind of drop a little bit, and then they go into this dive. It's the coolest thing. I mean, it's fast. Diving for fish. I love it. What am I supposed to be getting out of all that? Watching that. Besides the fact that it's just cool to watch. Beloved, I'm supposed to be seeing God's hand at work. And feeding the birds. And that, in turn, says Jesus is going to free me from anxiety from worry. That's Jesus' argument. This is simply astonishing, says Piper. The argument is valid only if God really is the one who sees to it that the birds find their worms, or in our case, finds the fish, and the lilies wear their flowers. If birds and lilies are acting by natural laws with no divine hand, then Jesus is just playing with words. But he is not playing with words. 
He really believes that God's hand is at work in the smallest details of natural processes. This is even clearer in Matthew 10, 29 and 30 through uh, 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God does not just feed the birds and clothe the lilies. He decides when every bird, countless millions of them every year, birds we don't even know about, that we never even see, die and fall to the ground. His point is the same as it is in Matthew 6. He is your father. You are more precious to him than birds. Therefore, you do not need to be afraid. It is that kind of pervasive providence combined with the kind of fatherly care means that he can and will take care of you. So seek first the kingdom of God and don't be anxious. I mean, it's, it's really mind-boggling when you think about it. I mean, there's, bird, you know, there's birds and jungles no humans ever laid eyes on. Little tiny things. And they die. How insignificant is that? Nobody even knows about it. And yet it doesn't happen apart from the Father's will. How much more is he going to take care of you? Psalm 104 writes, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. It is this sovereign, providential, purposeful care of, over all creation is what causes things like the following to be said in Scripture. Psalm uh, 147.8 he makes grass grow on the hills. Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He appointed a fish. In Jonah 4.6, the Lord appointed a plant. And then in the very next verse, quote, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Psalm 135, verse 7, he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 135, 7, again, he, it is he who makes the clouds rise, who makes lightnings for the rain. In Luke 8, 24, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Love, this isn't just some fancy poetry. Guys just watching natural law, quote unquote, and waxing eloquently about it. They didn't know any, the ancient Israelites knew nothing about so-called natural laws. This is God's hands-on providence. It's all around you. Again, Piper writes, does a robin need a worm to survive? Well, God governs the whole underground world of worms. 
and commands them to be where he wants them to be for his purposes. For example, when he wanted to rebuke Jonah for sitting in the shade with his ethnocentric anger, Jonah 4.7 says, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. Does a pelican need a fish to survive? Well, God governs the underwater world of fish and commands them to do his bidding as when Jonah needed saving from the deep. Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then when the disciples needed awakening, Jesus saw to it that the fish came along at the appointed time and filled their nets, Luke 5. And if necessary, one of these fish will have a shekel in its mouth, Matthew 17. Not to mention that when the fish are all dead, Jesus can see to it that two of them with five loads can feed 5,000 people. Matthew 14. And so Jesus takes this all-embracing view of providence, of God's purposeful, sovereign control over all things and reasons this way in Matthew 6. God feeds the birds of the air. You are more valuable to him than birds are. Therefore, he will give you everything you need to accomplish all his purposes, which is the foundation of the command, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is telling us to apply the doctrine of providence as we look at the natural world. Look at the birds of the air, Matthew 6. Consider the ravens, Luke 12. Consider the lilies, Luke 12. So my question to you today is, do you? Some may hear this and think, well, that's just silly. You know, I got all this stuff on my plate. I'm going to business school I got my job, and you're telling me to go walk outside and look at birds? How silly is that? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. Because that's what Jesus told us to do in battling anxiety. But of course, he tells us to do so with a certain worldview in mind, which you're only going to get from the scriptures. It isn't enough to just walk outside and look at birds. You have to watch the birds having been informed from Scripture about what is really going on in reality. And then you will see God's care all over the place. You can't get away from it. And notice Jesus did not say that not one of the sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father's awareness. That wouldn't do us any good. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, well, God watches all the birds die, so he's going to watch you die. That That wouldn't be helpful at all. The point is that apart from your father, he says, that is without the knowledge and consent of the father, no bird falls to the ground. The emphasis here is on God's all governing will, his eternal decree. And so the very thing that we don't think is happening in our lives due to fear, distrust, lack of faith, is actually going on all around us 24-7 if you have the eyes of faith to see it. Beloved, we need to continue to remind ourselves of that. We need to preach this to ourselves. We need to invest time in his word and meditate on these things. John Newton writes, one of the marks of Christian maturity which a believer should seek is an acquiescence 
in the Lord's will, founded in a persuasion of his wisdom, holiness, sovereignty, and goodness. So far as we attain to this, we are secure from disappointment. Our own limited views and short-sighted purposes and desires may be and will be often overruled. But then our main and leading desire that the will of the Lord may be done must be accomplished. How highly does it become us, both as creatures and as sinners, to submit to the appointments of our maker and how necessary it is to our peace. This great attainment is too often unthought of and overlooked. We are prone to fix our attention upon the secondary causes and immediate instruments of events, forgetting that whatever befalls us is according to his purpose and therefore must be right and seasonable in itself and shall in the issue be productive of good. From hence arise impatience, resentment, secret complainings, which are not only sinful, but tormenting. Whereas if all things are in his hand, if the very hairs of your head are numbered, if every event, great and small, is under the direction of his providence and purpose, and if he has a wise, holy, and gracious end in view to which everything that happens is subordinate and subservient, then we have nothing to do but with patience and humility to follow as he leads and cheerfully to expect a happy issue. How happy are they who can resign all to him to see in his hand in every dispensation and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could choose for themselves. Remember that Jesus said that the disciples were of little faith. Anxiety then is, is essentially a sin of unbelief. Well, how do we battle unbelief? Turn to the word. Turn to the promises of God and pray for the Spirit to strengthen your belief. Paul writes, the Lord is at hand. That is, he's near. Near to you is presence. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And then he gives this promise in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We see the same pattern from Jesus in Matthew 6. O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we battle anxiety. We battle the sin and unbelief of the word of God, the promises of God, and prayer. So in closing, you're anxious about being too weak to work? Battle that unbelief. With 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. If you're anxious about decisions you have to make in the future, battle that unbelief with this promise. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
you're anxious about facing opponents. Remember eight, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? When you're anxious about being sick, remember Paul says in Romans 5, tribulation works patience. And patience or provedness, and provedness hope, and hope does not make us ashamed. If you're anxious about getting old, battle that unbelief with this promise in Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. If you're anxious about dying, Remember what Paul writes in Romans 14, verses 8 through 9. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again, that, we might be, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. And if you're anxious that you may make shipwreck of your faith and fall away from God, Remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it for the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, who calls you is faithful, he will do it. And in Hebrews 7.25, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meditate upon his word. Pray over these promises, especially when the types of things that trigger your anxiety start to happen. That's the time to do it. And above all, ask God to give you faith to believe his providential will for you in these circumstances comes to you from his infinite wisdom, his goodness, and is ultimately intended for your good. And then ask God to give you a heart that is submissive to his will when things don't quite go the way that you plan for them let us pray